This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we're going to discuss uh, a topic that's ever-present in American history, but particularly important now and in the lead-up to our new elections and the aftermath of elections uh, in 2016 and 2018, uh, the question of the role of the working class in American history. Uh, what is the working class? Who are they? Where, where does the concept come from? And how do we think about that concept in relationship to the evolution of our democracy today? Uh, we have with us uh, not only only an expert on this topic, but someone who's probably over the course of the last three, four decades done some of the most important work on understanding the changes in American democracy and American politics, uh, my colleague and friend, Michael Lind. Uh, Michael is the author of a brand new book that I have just been reading, and it's really wonderful. It's, re- it's really a, a learned essay. I hope you're comfortable with my, my saying that. It's a long essay. It's a long, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Learned, it's, maybe. Well, learned, long, and it's, it's in many ways in the, uh, in the tradition of long-form journalism of an earlier generation, right? Uh, it's called, uh, Michael Lynn's new book is called The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial uh, Elite. Uh, Michael has written countless other books on uh, issues in American politics, religion, society, and the media. He's been very active throughout the world of think tanks and policy. Uh, and now he's uh, my colleague at the LBJ School of Public Affairs here at UT. Michael, it's, it's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Mike, uh, we have uh, Zachary with his uh, scene-setting poem today. What's the title of your poem, Bikai? Picturing America's Working Class. Let's hear it. Why is it that whenever I picture America's working class, my my mind flutters between the image of a bus stop in a small German town during a power outage in an English-dubbed sci-fi television show and the angularity of looking at a McDonald's sign through the highway supports? Or in my mind, it is some false recollection of car part assembly plants in Wisconsin where all the workers seem to be balding white men in worn blue button-down shirts, some recreated picture of a Springsteen song in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, that time we drove from Ithaca to Gettysburg. And in this dream state where we vagrants of the 21st seem always to float, organized labor is the pajama game and a title number, working class synonymous for pickup trucks and worrying about car insurance. But no one is really sure who these mystical majorities are and, in somewhat of a devious way, we aren't really sure they ever existed. And why do the George Baileys of this new decade race time itself through Amazon warehouses? Why do they feel they are the concluding note of a slide whistle? Why is it that struggling men in Lake Charles, Louisiana, vote against welfare and health care when it's really their fair share and their care? Why is it that Birmingham isn't too far from Seattle, but old McDonald and his old Kentucky home is like stepping through the vibrations of a bluegrass song to find a fiddle from a block ago that was a violin? And why do we keep pressing the drilled press into the same block of wood, those inevitable decades when it all floats to the top, a regilded age that any machine tool on a container ship on its way to China could talk to us about for hours? Why do we keep dropping the coins onto those old charity change collectors where the quarter spins round and round and slips in a spiral down the cochlea into a gaping hole to find we're really looking at the backside of a geyser spewing coins up into the 1%? Hmm. Brilliant. Uh, you cover a lot with that. Wow. 
Well, what, what is your poem about? My poem is really about this image of the American working class that so many of us have that uh, to every generation seems like seems like an ideal that we're working towards, but at the same time it feels very distant. And it's sort of about the mythology of the working class mm-hmm. in American society and, and its relationship with money. Right. Wow. And, and all, the, all the references to it in our daily lives. Mike, what, what do you think? How do we think about the working class? Is this a good place to start? Yeah, I think there are sort of uh, stereotypes. <clears throat> you know, if you go to Rockefeller Center in New York, it's these very thick-necked, yes. you know, Euro-Americans. Yes. Uh, you know, building dams and and construction workers, and the working class has always been much more diverse than that, of course. Uh, and the nature of work has uh, changed dramatically in the 21st century, and our popular perceptions have not caught up. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, the 10 most numerous jobs, numerous in terms of new jobs being created, uh, are all in the fields of retail and uh, hospitality. Wow. Uh, uh, or leisure and hospitality, retail and uh, health care. Hmm. And only one of those jobs, a registered nurse, requires education. And so this really undercuts two of the narratives we have about the working class in the 21st century. There's kind of the I would call it the neoliberal meritocratic narrative. All the jobs of the future are in tech and require STEM education, science, technology, uh, and in math. Right. Uh, then there's the other narrative, which is good jobs are factory jobs, where you go and the whistle blows and you take right. your lunch bucket and you retire after 30, 40 years on the job with a good pension. Uh, and, you know, the 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 meritocratic vision of the tech workers uh, just numerically, there aren't that many of those jobs and, and never have been. <clears throat> so that's kind of a future that never happened. Right. Uh, and then you have this past that did happen but isn't coming back. So that's the big challenge. Right. The past being the factory, the auto right, worker right, who has factory. good benefits. And, and, and the reason we, uh, as I point out in the book, The New Class War, we think of these uh, factory jobs as being good jobs because somehow there's something mystical about a factory. In fact, they were terrible jobs right, right. in the 1920s, and they were good jobs in the 1950s because of organized labor, right. because of collective right. bargaining right. and government reform. And if history had gone somewhat differently, let's say if uh, health aides had and white-collar service workers had unionized in the 1940s and 50s, but not steel workers and auto workers, we might to this day think of, oh, you know, hospital, you know, orderly job, that's a great job, you know, keeps you out of the horrible factories. Right, right. And and so uh, part of the point here, it seems to me, is that the working class as, as an identity is something that's been made and unmade with every generation. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah that's right. And, and of course, the working class grew up with the uh, capitalist class, and they, they've uh, evolved together for most of history and for the first part of American history. The two groups were landlords and uh, peasants or, right. or farmers, right. whether so, they were chattel slaves, tenant farmers, whatever. So, so, so the, the, the capitalists in your, in your definition are those who, who own the, the financial resources and the uh, re- resources related to land and production, and the working class are those who are working on someone else's resources, well, basically. The, the, that, that's right. The working class... Uh, has always existed, but it, it, it was very small numbers. Uh, the, the Latin term proletarian, publicized by Marxists, sure. uh, means you know someone who, who owns no property uh, has to sell his or her labor uh, in order to survive, in order to eat, and, and you know have shelter. Uh, and uh, the what I call the first class war took place 
beginning in Britain, the first industrial nation, and then in, in other countries as they industrialized, when uh, the children and grandchildren of uh, farmers or farm labor moved to the cities, became landless laborers, and this created an enormous crisis because they, they couldn't fall back on, on the village, on their neighbors, on, on farming. Uh, they were completely dependent on their wages. Right. Uh, and this uh, uh, first-class war, I argue, ended after much strife by about 1945 in the Western democracies when you had a, a class compromise um, brokered and more or less imposed by national governments, mm-hmm. uh, largely in the interest of wartime mobilization, but then it lasted after that. And that's what brings a kind of golden age for the working class. Right? Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. And, and I think the prior stage of wartime mobilization uh, tends to be neglected, uh, uh, where you look at, for example, unionization in the United States. Uh, this was a constant struggle from sure. below, uh, and it and it never really succeeded in, until actually during World War One, when Woodrow Wilson brings in Samuel Gompers, the head of the American Federation of Labor, into the government. Right. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt does the same thing by means of what is called the maintenance of membership rule. Uh, a union membership just shoots up because that's a condition uh, imposed by the federal government on employers who want to get government contracts right. during the war. And both after World War One and World War II, uh, employers had a counter-revolution, hmm. which uh, was quite violent uh, in, in the 1919 strikes and then in the 1920s. And they more or less successfully repealed all of these gains after the Wilson administration. Uh, it took longer for them to hack away at this uh, after World War II. So, but, uh, but by, the, by 2020, uh, private sector unionization now is down to uh, less than 7%. Right, right. One of the points you make in the book is that um, working people, uh, whether they are working people in rural areas, urban areas, et cetera, uh, they have less voice in our society. And, and that builds upon uh, what you describe very well in the book, uh, the the prevalence of working class voices in this period after World War II. One thinks of the role of unions in American politics, but beyond that, in sort of day-to-day life in communities, why is that the case at that point, in that period? Well, I, I sort of follow Max Weber, thinking sure. of different realms of society, and the, the three realms I talk about are uh, power, uh, economics, and the culture. And in all three of those, uh, working class people had their interests and their values amplified, not necessarily, in, you know, for the good of society, but for, you know, in, in their own interest through uh, trade unions, uh, through uh, religious organizations, churches and synagogues, which were much more well attended and more powerful and influential in the 1950s, 1960s than they are now in our more secular world. Uh, and finally, through local political machines. And, and looking back from today's partisan politics, uh, conservatives don't like unions. Uh, a lot of secular progressives uh, are anxious about organized religion. And uh, liberals and conservatives pretty much always hated local political <laughs> machines right, with right, their corrupt right. bosses and their war right. dealers and all of that. Uh, but but what, what these institutions did was, first of all, they organized uh, work. And I'm using the, the term working class mostly for high school educated okay. workers who are about uh, uh, 70% of the population. And non-college educated. Non-college educated. Uh, and uh, they... they uh, they're, they're your only resource if you're an ordinary non-college educated worker. You don't have financial 
personal financial resources. You don't have, uh, you know, professional uh, expertise. Uh, you have numbers. Ordinary people have numbers in these organizations, whether they were religious congregations, uh, federations of local political parties, or federations of unions. They they uh, organized a lot of people in, into a single force. Uh, it was not a policy-making force uh, in either of these three realms, uh, but they had veto power. Gotcha. Uh, and the veto power took the form of the threat of a strike mm-hmm. in the unions, the threat of a boycott of Hollywood movies and TV shows sure, sure. if you offended Catholic or Protestant or sometimes Jewish uh, sensibilities, Interesting. Uh, and the threat of denying renomination. I see back when we didn't have primaries and, and right. when the local party bosses, you had to get their approval. Right. Uh, and as these uh, three different institutions, the union, the religious congregation, and the local political machine have atrophied for mm-hmm. different reasons mm-hmm. over the past half century, just kind of naturally, it's not a conspiracy or anything. I'm not writing about a cabal. Right. No, not at all. Uh, people like us, college-educated people, we've just kind of inherited more and more power that was, you know, once uh, shared more broadly. Gotcha. Zachary, you wanted to come in on this? Yeah, I I wanted to ask how much of the sort of... this sort of uh, image of a declining working class in America that that, that both left and right have today, how much is that a function of of the working class becoming more diverse, both uh, in terms of more secular, more liberal voices, and uh, and racially? Like, how, how much of the supposed decline of the working class comes from a feeling of of, of progressive change. Well, uh, I, I think the the actual working class was always yeah. diverse. Yeah, uh, there was a kind of labor aristocracy, to use the Marxist term. Uh, you know, the white male industrial workers. Uh, uh, compared to African Americans who were, uh, the unions generally supported civil rights, uh, but that local unions didn't necessarily do it. There were varied over nep- time. Yeah, there were local nepotistic rules and right. things like that. that, that the AFL and CIO were quite different. They right? kept out minorities, but I, I do, I would push back against the suggestion that sometimes made was that there was a trade-off. Right. That, well, the working class has designed, declined, but civil rights ha- have increased. Uh, the two most important uh, African-American civil rights leaders in the 20th century were A. Philip Randolph and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. A. Philip Randolph was the railway porter union. Right. Of course. He was a labor leader. Right. Pullman sleeper cars. That's right. And uh, he was the chairman of the March on Washington, right. the title of which in 1963, where Martin Luther King Jr. made his uh, I Have a Dream speech, uh, the the march for jobs and freedom. Right. So <clears throat> jobs, collective bargaining uh, were intimately linked uh, in the civil rights era. And then, of course, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was a pastor uh, in a, a somewhat socially conservative church uh uh not most most people don't realize this a uh, billy graham and king were friends and they seriously considered going on a nationwide revival uh where they would preach you know their version of evangelical uh, right, protestantism right. and uh graham from a very early period uh insisted on integrating all of his religious revivals in, in the southern states whatever the local rule right so uh uh so what what the civil rights leaders lo- wanted <clears throat> was to bring African Americans into the existing New Deal order with organized labor and all of that. Uh, it, it wasn't their intent to, you know, uh, end up with this kind of globalized 
neoliberal system where where uh, unions wither away, and uh, and also becoming more secular because mm-hmm. if, if to this day uh, a lot of working class African Americans and Latinos are more socially conservative uh, than a lot of uh, white progressives. Mm-hmm. So so is what's driving this um, really the the decline of these other institutions? Is it a set of attacks upon them? What? What, you know, because it seemed to be a system that worked pretty well the way you describe it in the 1950s and 60s, right? I, I think uh, organized labor is really the, the key to it. Uh, that's that's the, the If you look at the uh, w- where you get the rise of these populist movements in the second half of the second decade of the 21st century, uh, whether it's the U.S., U.K., France, Italy, Germany. It's a deindustrialized regions. Right. Either they were long in decline, a lot of them were hit by this wave of subsidized Chinese import mm-hmm. competition, mm-hmm. which, according to David Ottawa and his colleagues, very rapidly wiped out millions of jobs. So automation had something to do with it, but there was also just this tsunami. Right. Uh, and those, those groups had been the core of the central left and the social democratic parties in this 1945 to late 20th century uh, uh, era, uh, you know, as as they declined, uh, you, the center-left parties have essentially have a new coalition. It's increasingly uh, upper-middle class, college-educated, native whites. Mm-hmm. And this is on both sides of the Atlantic. I think we're now sufficiently close to Europe. We can make some broad mm-hmm. generalizations. Western Europe, not Eastern Europe, that's a different thing. But Western Europe, uh, minorities, and uh, immigrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, by no means not all of them, but majority. So this would be the Democratic Party in the U.S., uh, the SPD the, the Labor Germany. Party, The Labor Party, the SPD. Uh, and I, I explained this in the new class war by drawing on the sociologist uh, Edna Bonasich's idea of a split labor market, where you have groups that are ethnically distinct or religiously, or they may be of the same race, different religion, whatever. Uh, but different groups are willing to work for different wages. Uh, and so if you look at this new center-left coalition, these are people who are doing well. And it may seem paradoxical because it's this kind of hourglass coalition of very well-paid professionals, right. but also rather poorly paid uh, immigrants in particular in, in uh, Western sure. countries. Sure. Sure. But the immigrants are doing better than they were. Right. Right. They're aspirational. You know, so to them, life is getting better uh, than it was in, in the old country. Uh, then you have these uh, often in the former manufacturing uh, areas, uh, downwardly mobile or at least uh, stagnating native white working class. But by no means all native white uh, working class. Throughout the book, I I insist on qualifying this. Uh, I say it's mostly but not entirely white. If you look at the voters for Brexit in Britain, uh, one-third of BAME voters, uh, black and Middle Eastern voters, voted for Brexit. Really? Yeah. If if you look at... uh, 29% 29% of Latinos voted for Trump, uh, and, and much higher, you know, for Abbott in, in Texas. So it's, so it's not a matter of the white working class. It's the mostly white working class. Mm-hmm. And, what, and, and why do they see these figures, Zachary referred to them in his poem, who seem to be cutting off their benefits? As the people they want, those who are attacking um, health care provisions. And well, well, other I think if, if you look at, at the <clears throat> three realms uh, and, and you have these uh, working, let's say, working class British labor voters who right. switched massively right. for the conservatives from, from labor. And they think of 
the Labour Party as being metropolitan professionals who look down their noses at them culturally uh, in the realms of uh, uh, culture. Uh, you know, politically, they feel they don't have much voice. You know, and then let's say the Labour Party says, well, we'll offer you, you know, 500 pounds more a year, Right. Uh, that's not enough. <laughs> so it's not just about money, right? right? It, it's about this perception of, of of who is on our side. Yes, yes. And again, this is where I think the disintegration, particularly of the the federated political parties as machines, yes. and the disintegration of the unions really has, has crippled the center-left because right. there's a concept in political science called identity vouching. Uh, that is, uh, someone who shares your identity can vouch for an idea or a movement right. or you a trust reform. Them. You trust them, right? As opposed to uh, someone from a completely different group who parachutes in and says, you know, you know, this is good for – well, who are you? What standing right. do you have? Right. What authority do you have in our community? And there's a lot of uh, data that shows that unionized working class whites in the U.S., vote in a more liberal direction than the non-union ones. Right. Right. Uh, and that's because the union officials whom they trust uh, can explain what the party line sure. is nationally. The, conver- the reverse of that is also important. It means that discontent can bubble up from below. And we, we have these uh, political elites now where the parties are kind of free-floating labels that – Trump can buy or billionaires, you know, Steyer and, and Bloomberg and so on. Uh, uh, so how do they find out about what people are thinking? Down at the grassroots, they commission pollsters. Right. But a pollster is not a substitute for the local precinct uh, captain. Sure. So so part of what I'm understanding in your book and it's and, and in your explanation here is that there is this there's this group and part of our society that's being left further and further behind. It's not just that they're being left behind economically, they're being culturally left behind. Uh, wh- why is it that this doesn't overlap with the evangelical movement? You draw a distinction there also, right? You say there's a, there's a breakdown in traditional religious elements that held these groups together, but yet the evan- evan- evangelicalism has grown significantly in our society. Well, not necessarily. If you look at the last uh, decade, <clears throat> contrary to what a lot of people were saying, uh, the evangelical churches are losing membership. Uh, all of the Christian churches in the United States, as well as the liberal branches of uh, Judaism, are shedding younger people. Uh, the mainline Protestant churches are collapsing the most rapidly. Uh, Catholicism is shedding people, and its its ranks are being renewed by immigrants from Latin America, from, from Africa, uh, from other regions. Uh, but the evangelicals, about a third of the population, I, last time I checked, was evangelical. But if you go to millennials, it, it drops to like Interesting. 10%. Interesting. Uh, and the biggest uh, uh, reason that young evangelicals give for leaving uh, evangelical Protestant churches is they say it was too politicized. It became right. a wing of the Republican Party, right. and it's anti-gay. They they use that again and again and again. So, so they're in a sense running away from the Dem- the Republican Party as they yeah. ran away from the Democratic Party before. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that they're going to be incorporated. Well, what is the Democratic Party? I get right. before last week. Uh, uh, I went online because I was thinking when I was growing up in in uh, uh, Austin, there was a Travis County. Democratic Party, and there was right. Jake Pickle, our representative. Sure, and, sure, but sure. it was a structure; it was like a club, right? And and my high school educated uh, uh, farm bred uh, grandmother and, and her African American neighbors, you know, did things in it, and it, I mean, it was a club. Uh, so I went online to see how I could join the Democratic Party, and 
it's very opaque if you've ever tried this experiment. Uh, the, I haven't checked the Republicans. I assume the same thing. You get a page that says donate. Right, of course. <laughs> right. Of course. Uh, so then you go through some of, like, you know, city, you know, county. Some of them will say volunteer. But nowhere do you get the flow chart or, right. you know, who's in charge or, you know, like if this is a club. Right. right? So, so th- th- you know, the fact that you, l- you leave you know, one, you know, the Republicans doesn't mean you necessarily join the Democrats if there's nothing to join. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Zachary? I, I wanted to ask you, uh, how do we rec- reconcile the, the, the deep and, and very, like, uh, truly felt uh, economic anxiety of the working class in America? How do we reconcile that with the appeal that uh, that, that, that leaders around the world uh, use, use um, in the form of hatred? How do we recognize, how do we reconcile hatred with this deep economic anxiety? Are Great they connected question. in any way? Well, you have demagogues, you know, who can mobilize, you know, ethnic resentments and, and racism. Uh, but, I, but I think usually demagogues are successful when they are for fairly popular middle-of-the-road things. Right, they don't advertise the dark, nasty sides of it. Their demagogue comes from the Greek word for leader of the people. So, uh, if if you know, so Trump makes all these racist, bigoted comments. Uh, I think it's a mistake to say that's the source of chief source of his appeal with his voters, as opposed to you know he's going to stand up to China on manufacturing. Right is going to you know get the economy. Though on immigration, these things come together, right? He's not going to let other people come into the country who don't look like the working class, right? No, that's not true. If you look at the Republican uh, immigration bill, okay. uh, the major it, it would not it would accelerate the non-white majority in the United States, and that's the one Trump supports. Uh, what it would do is it would shift the category from family unification, which is largely Latin American now, though it won't be a decade from now. Okay. Uh, to uh, uh, the sort of skilled meritocratic, you know, uh, uh, pattern right, they have right, in Canada. Right. The vast majority of beneficiaries of those will be uh, uh, college-educated people from Asia, uh, Africa, and also Latin America. Right. One thing that people don't realize is uh, uh, Latin Americans, apart from Mexicans and Central Americans in the U.S., uh, have much more income than the average white American because you know they're professionals right they're college students uh west africans uh, have very high incomes in the u.s because most of them are professionals right so i'm look i didn't i'm not defending trump no no and and you know he has used various dog whistles and so on uh but there is no republican plan anywhere that would reduce non-white immigration and increase white immigration from Europe. That just doesn't exist. Right, but, even though he has said but, that. But you don't see Trump as as coming from uh, a long-standing, uh, a long-standing um, hatred in American society and racism that's been here since from the beginning, that has been hidden for the past few decades. No, as many have argued. No. Uh, for one thing, the racism is there. It's not terribly hidden. It's been declining according to every uh, uh, measure, including intermarriage, which is the ultimate measure of declining racism. And you also can't explain, either in the U.S. or Europe, a variable by a constant, particularly a declining constant, right? So if you look at far-right parts, so in in the National uh, Front in France France, under uh, Marine Le Pen has capitalized. Yes, on a lot of this uh, populist discontent. 
Uh, but you can't say it's just racism because they were racist in 1980, 1990, and 2000. So what is it? Why do you get this influx of former socialist and often former communist voters from industrial regions in France? And I think it's got a, it's involved with globalization right. and and uh, immigration to some extent in its economic. Right. It's interesting. Uh, this is this is the phenomenon of the voters who say they like Trump and Bernie Sanders. Yeah, uh, there was a fascinating study by uh, David Autor and his colleagues uh, that showed that the higher the damage done by uh, Chinese import competition in manufacturing areas in the Midwest, the more likely uh, voters were to favor either Trump or Sanders. Right. Right. Because they thought the mainstream centrist right. Bush Republicans, Clinton Democrats had let them down. Right. So so I, uh, you know, racism, the pure racist nativist parties get maybe five or ten percent uh anything they get above that they are opportunistically operating on on other issues so uh, and, and and you know just yeah, just to sure. follow up on that point where the mainstream parties have addressed this for example the 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 center left in denmark where uh you know they they tightened up on immigration which was a, a big issue the same thing happened in sweden where they tightened up uh <clears throat> The far right parties shriveled hmm, they, interesting. because they lost those floating voters and they shrank to their their natural base, which is there, but it's it's not that big. So we we always like to close, as you know, on a, on a positive note. And you wrote the the uh, the new class war too to to try to counsel for positive change, not not simply to uh, lament the dissolution of the working class. Um, and uh, the argument you make in the book uh, is about the need for a new democratic pluralism. What, what does that mean, and how does that build on your analysis to move our democracy forward around these issues? Well, we're not going to go back to the trade unions and the uh, churches and, you know, the local political parties, which were often quite corrupt, you know, of uh, half a century ago. But I think that we will continue to be stuck in this doom loop of very insiderish, technocratic, elite, you know, top-down policy, challenged periodically by mostly unsuccessful, buffoonish, charlatanish, demagogic populists. Right. Uh, and so how do we get out of this this cycle? Uh, and I think it, it's not simply a matter of policy. But, you know, policy is part of it. But that in itself is kind of a top-down technocratic thing. Mm -hmm. If we just get, you know, wages right and we get benefits right, then people will be happy and so on. People want power. Power is an independent variable, right? right? You know, it's and, – and you can't go to them and say, well, you're going to be powerless, uh, but we'll give you more money. I think that's kind of condescending. So, so in a way, I'm kind of pessimistic. I'm I'm a long run optimist mm -hmm. because uh, the the United States and similar countries, uh, even though you may have the same written paper constitution, there's kind of an informal constitution, an informal system, a regime, a settlement, right. as political scientists call it. And this breaks down every couple of decades, uh, and then it takes a generation or so to build a new system. And we're I think seeing the the gradual collapse of this uh, neoliberal system that started with Reagan and Thatcher uh, and was adopted in some ways by, by Clinton and Blair uh, and did some good. You know, you're, whenever, you're not going to go back you know, before. Mm -hmm. uh, and the legacy of neoliberalism in terms of civil rights and liberties and sexual freedom, that will be part of the new, new system. But, but I think uh, uh, something's going to emerge uh, and if it's stable and if it, it will incorporate 
working class people who will be more diverse. It won't just be white, you know, factory guys. Uh, it will be uh, people of color who work in, you know, the health industry, which maybe is central to the economy in the 21st century sure, as the automobile sure. industry was in the 21st. So I'm a long run optimist. I like to tell the story about uh, Adam Smith, the, the great economist sure. and moral philosopher. Uh, you know, he had a young assistant who came in one day. He'd read in the newspapers that the British Empire had lost some battle against the French somewhere. And he said, uh, Professor Smith, Britain is ruined. And uh, Professor Smith supposedly said to him, young man, there's a great deal of ruin in a country. <laughs> and in many ways, what you're pointing out is how that ruin can be productive for, for change. Well, I think this is a hopeful vision it's yeah. not what it means is that one generation is not going to fix all problems for the right. end of time right. it means that every generation uh you there are going to be scheming crooked people there are going to be villains there are going to be heroes there are going to be prophets uh and every generation has to rebuild the country uh, uh, uh yeah, either for better or for worse. Yeah, that makes so, sense. So, uh, you know, to me, that's an inspiring vision. So, Zachary, what do you think? Do you, do you think this is a vision that can draw uh, young people like you who are interested in getting educated and becoming, in one sense, part of a meritocratic elite, but on the other hand, concerned about integrating these working class voices? Do you see a future there that, 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 that Mike is, is uh, painting for us here? I definitely do. I think what's what's really powerful too about about what you were saying is is this idea that we get to we get to remake the economic system of the future, and that this is part of the responsibility of a new generation of Americans. Your generation. Yeah, and I think that this is something that um, that, that 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 is really important to think about as we right. look back on the history right. of America and, and as we vote moving forward and decide uh, what what we're going to do with our future. Right. And it, it allows, uh, in conclusion, bringing these wonderful points together, it allows me to uh, mention one of my heroes, uh, E.P. Thompson, the great British historian uh, who wrote The Making of the English Working Class. And his argument was just the argument that Zachary and Mike articulated, which was that the working class was not simply an economic phenomenon. It was a cultural and political phenomenon. It was about power. And uh, economics is not destiny. That's we right. can remake our society, and, and a consciousness of this history gives us the leverage to look at the world today and to try to work to adjust it with new institutions. Amen. <laughs> Mike, Mike, your book is a, is a wonderful start on this road. It's an analysis of this and also helps us to think about our path forward. So I highly recommend The New Class War. And Zachary, your poem uh, opened our eyes to many of the elements of what E.P. Thompson called the culture of the working class. Wonderful. And uh, thank you for sharing with us today. Thank you for joining us on this episode of This is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.